Mick Clifford is also in the studio, very busy Dublin studio this lunchtime. How are you doing, Mick? Not too bad, no, Jonathan. Did you get in the bike to come in? You didn't have the bus. I always get in the bike, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> your, your svelte physique is testament to that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Jean-Claude Trichet uh, and his appearance before the banking inquiry yesterday. Look, I know they got to ask questions and I know that they got answers, but... I just, it had an element of farce about it that you hear this Oireachtas committee that had to, you know, abandon Leinster House to go to an event he happened to be at and then line up like good little boys and girls and ask their questions. Did we learn anything from it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there was something farcical about it. In in some ways, it was a bit like a talent competition. You know the way you have the judges lined up in front of the stage and and the, and the contestant up on the stage nearly as if... Oh, but if they had big red buzzers in front of them, they yeah, could press if they and, didn't like the answer. And and waiting for uh, Mr. Trichet to give us a rendition of a Je ne regret rien, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, no, we didn't learn anything terribly new. I think what we did learn and what was reinforced and... and what the exercise was useful for was it gave us a perspective from outside the country about the economic collapse and the fallout that has afflicted this society. And that perspective, Jonathan, is pretty different from the general narrative within the country. We are used to blaming, to a large extent, the ECB, external institutions like that, for our woe. Mr Trichet was making the point that Ireland got into major problems as far as he's concerned the ECB bent over backwards to um, to help us but uh, he's also a, a not as safe ground on issues like burning the bondholders and claiming that the ECB were merely advising well, I mean as I wrote today in the Irish Examiner when someone's advising you and they're carrying a big stick you could well interpret that as a threat and the problem is of all of this the one person we really would dearly love to hear evidence from to try and cast some light on this because he was the guy dealing with all of this, Brian Lenehan. We won't hear evidence from him and that is a real flaw in any attempt made by this inquiry uh, to reach a conclusion. It is and I'd have to say that some of what Mr Trichet had to say yesterday may have impinged a bit on uh, the late Mr Lenehan's reputation. The, the, there was, he was asked about an alleged conversation that uh, Brian Lenehan passed on to someone that Mr Trichet had with him and Mr Trichet said no, it never happened. Um, he said Brian Lennon was very happy to go along with the idea of not burning the bondholders on the basis of the best thing for the country. That would be in conflict with some of the stuff that was around at the time. And unfortunately, as you say, Mr Lennon isn't around himself. Now, it was interesting, the inquiry are going to bring in Alan Ahern, who was his economic advisor, and Cathy Herbert, who was a close advisor of his as well. So perhaps they might be able to shed some light on uh, what the situation was with the minister at the time. Well, the contrition from bankers was obvious as well because both AIB and Bank of Ireland uh, proved that sorry was in fact not the hardest word. They, they all said sorry uh, for whatever part they may have played. But we did hear a little bit of contradiction between AIB and Bank of Ireland about the night of the guarantee and the impression they left government buildings with that morning. Yeah, I mean, the AIB personnel last week said they, they heard in the morning on the media that it had been a six-bank guarantee they'd only wanted four. Brian Goggin of Bank of Ireland suggested yesterday that they knew leaving that it was only going to be four. I have to say, Jonathan, look, the drama around that night, we've already had an, an excellent play by Colin Murphy. It was turned into a movie, you know, a good movie. And there's drama and everyone's putting huge emphasis on it. And it is interesting because it was a very dramatic night. However, I still say that we're overplaying the importance of what happened that night as opposed to what happened... What in happened beforehand. How, particularly how we got the 12 to months of what happened over five years. 
the country was messed up but over the 12 months leading up to it in particular I think was the vital time and culpability lies greatly to my mind in what happened then rather than any specifics of the night ah, guarantee. Make your, look, don't be so naive. There's much more political capital to be made out of focusing on one night where a disastrous there decision is, was made. There is, that media capital. We're try- all like yeah. it, yeah. Then trying to find out what may have actually gotten us there in the first place. I want to talk about uh, the, the big story out of the courts this week, uh, the acquittal of Gail O'Rourke for uh, helping her friend Bernadette Ford. Um I think if you'd stopped people on the street, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who thought that this was a good case to be brought. But the guards did it, the DPP did it, because they had to do it, and the law is as it stands. Yeah, and the guards, initially, they didn't do anything. They subsequently changed. Now, it isn't clear, but I presume that was under direction from the DPP office. But I was down there one day, Jonathan, and it was a sort of a surreal atmosphere. You're talking about a scenario in which a court is dealing with somebody who has died. We're used to that in other circumstances of the criminal court. Also, the, the, the penalty, the, the maximum penalty for this offence was 14 years in prison. Yet... The, the judge, the prosecution, as well as the defence went out of their way to make clear that the defendant, Gail O'Rourke, was a person of not just the highest character, but who had acted as she did completely out of nothing more than love and loyalty for her friend who was dead. And having said all that, I think questions have to be raised. I mean, the DPP brought this case on the basis that that's the law as it stands. In the UK, the DPP uses discretion and issues issues guidelines about under what circumstances this mm. would not be brought as a but prosecution. We, do, we don't have a precedent for doing that here. So therefore the DPP can't move without the legislature moving first. Well, this is the other thing. I mean, and the Supreme Court suggests the DPP could use discretion in a situation like Mary Fleming's. Now, this in a lot of ways in terms of the people around um, Bernadette Ford was very similar to Mary Fleming. But obviously the DPP decided not to use that discretion. That to me more than ever throws the ball back into the court of the legislature. And I think if anything comes out of this case, it should be that this thing has to be addressed one way or the other. At the very least, there needs to be a very open debate and see what particular roads uh, the legislature can go down or what can be done. Because let's face it, as a number of people have said, anybody put yourself in the position of Gail O'Rourke or anybody else who was around the deceased woman, Bernadette Ford, would you have done anything differently? Uh, just to finish up, Mick, uh, I know Tuesday afternoons there for your downtime. You normally watch box old box sets of Bonanza <laughs> or whatever you do, but you, you got the popcorn out. You, sit, you sat down, listened to the spring statement. Were you as bored as the rest of us? No, more bored, I'd say, Jonathan. It, it, it was. Um, what, what was there to it? It's an election gimmick, you know. That's the, oh, that's no, the gist no, no. of it. They're setting out the, the economic statement uh, so we can plan for the next 12 months. Don't be so cynical. Mick. Not just the next 12 months, next five years. In other words, lads, you better elect, you better re-elect us if you want all these great goodies because no one else is going to give them to you. Yeah, and don't forget as well, we were very good at predicting things in the past. Sure, what could possibly go wrong now with us predicting that far into the future? Don't uh, tempt it, Jonathan, don't tempt it. <laughs> Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner, pleasure as always. Let's go across to our other Friday regular, Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe. How are you, Kevin? Jonathan, I'm well. Uh, we have been talking a lot over here on this side of the pond about Baltimore in the last week. Uh, the demonstrations turned very violent. It all followed the death of, of another black man in another police department's custody. His name was Freddie Gray. Here is his solicitor, Billy Murphy. What happened to Freddie Gray when he was in, in, in police custody? How did he go from being a completely functional human being into someone, if he had lived, would have been a quadriplegic? 
and he died of these horrible injuries. That's not going anywhere. They can throw all the diversions up that they want and there's so many eyes on the ground now. You have cell phone cameras everywhere. So I'm not as afraid about police misconduct and handling the demonstration as I otherwise would have been. Uh, the thing about this, Kevin, is from, from an impartial outside observer, as we would be in this country, this is a huge problem for the country, that we have so oh, many absolutely. black people dying at the hands of the people that are, that are charged to serve and protect them. How is this playing out internally in the U.S.? Well, I mean, it's, it's dominating the sort of cable news, 24-hour news coverage. I think most Americans are probably totally ignoring it, or they give it just passing notice. The interesting thing about this, John, is that unlike Ferguson, unlike the other situations that have happened over the past year, you had situations that are almost like akin to the old South Africa, in which blacks were in the majority of the population, but they were that the superiors, the people that oversaw the, the mechanisms of government, tended to be white, and it was disproportionate. Baltimore is a whole different ballgame. It is a black majority city. It has a black mayor. It has a black police commissioner. Basically, everybody in charge of everything in Baltimore is black. And so I, I think what this is also forcing us to do is something people in this country don't like to confront, is that so often when we're talking about race, we're really talking about class. If you see the pictures on television of people rioting and going crazy, it's not because they're black, it's because they're poor. And, and, and Baltimore is a classic example. I mean, when you sit down there and you talk about the racist power structure, how can you say that when the power structure happens to be African-American? But I think this is, is actually helpful for us because we have to talk about them at the same time because race and class are inextricable in this country, but you don't hear it talked about that. You never hear on the evening news or on the cable news people talking about class. It's so easy, so simple to talk about it in racial terms. But in Baltimore, that doesn't make sense. Uh, the police are now saying they won't publish a report into Freddie Gray's death as planned later today. Now, that would give rise to suspicion about what's in it. Is there a reason for that? Well, I think because this is subject to a criminal investigation. I mean, it, just from afar, looking at this, what I've read about this, it, it, it seems that the biggest problem here is he was not restrained. He was just thrown in the back. By the way, people in Ireland will be interested to hear that in, on the national network news, people have been calling it a paddy wagon. I mean, they're decrying racism and using this blatantly racist term about Irish people and not even blinking about it. I think, so, we, to be fair, I think we actually use paddy wagon as a colloquialism over here if you're unfortunate enough to be thrown into one. I in Ireland, I saw a tourist, and that's what it said. It said paddy wagon on the side of it, some tourist bus. But anyway, you know, it, it looks to me that the biggest problem here is that Freddie Gray was not restrained. He was put in the back of a police wagon and drove all around the city and was sort of this casual, you know, he should have been brought immediately to a hospital, but the, the more important thing is he, he should have been restrained. And the typical protocol is to restrain anyone who's taken into custody. They have to be seat belted in. I mean, that's, that's just, it's police 101. And this didn't mm. happen in this case. So, I mean, I'd be stunned if there were criminal charges against at least some of the, there were six police officers who were, had been suspended pending investigation. I can't believe some of them won't face criminal charges. But the problem is the police have a duty of care to every citizen, not just uh, white ones or, or, or rich Absolutely. ones or whatever the case may be. And, you know, we have a system in this country 
we still have it, even after all that has gone on, of policing by consent. We consent right. to the laws that are in place and therefore that's why we live in a society that we have an unarmed police force. We, you don't have that in the States. You have police enforcement and as that enforcement becomes more aggressive you're going to have more Freddie Grays and you're going to have more disquiet. Someone higher up the food chain is going to have to intervene here has the White House said anything about this because that's what happened in the 60s Yep, I I spent a lot of time recently just did a magazine piece about Bill Bratton who's head of the New York Police Department wasn't in New York before, was in LA He's, he's probably the top cop in America and he made it very clear that this is, you know, when he went into New York in the mid-90s and lowered crime unbelievably, that was one thing. That's, that's nothing compared to what he's trying to do now. And he's trying to do exactly what you said, policing by consent. And that the police will do exactly what the community wants, and, or, you know, primarily what the community wants. So if the community, if their attitude is they don't have a problem with people standing on the corner drinking and causing trouble, they won't do that. And it, it is about policing by consent, and you will d- dramatically reduce these kind of confrontations. I mean, Freddie Gray was a guy that kept getting arrested for drugs, and was it, you know, he was he was a habitual offender on stuff like that. But he's somebody who needed he needed rehab. He didn't need to be thrown in prison, that's for sure. When you look at his record, but that's that that's a problem all across America. We don't have enough rehab beds, so we use our prisons to put people who have mental illness or drug addictions in. It's, it, it's overwhelming. And when you get into the African-American community, it's stunning the numbers of people that are put into prison for stuff that really could be treated medically or should be treated medically. And so all of these things, John, we, we don't have much of a conversation. I can't stress enough. If you talk to like the ordinary white American, they are looking at this and just sort of, it's not their world. You know, I got off the commuter boat last night coming back from the, from the Boston Marathon bomb trial. And I noticed there wasn't one black person on the, on the commuter boat. It was all white people. They all went to their nice cars. They all drove back to their suburban houses. And Baltimore and Maryland is far away from them as Baltimore and West Cork. Uh, just to finish up, Kevin, uh, a very serious story, but there was something that went viral about a mom who saw her son involved yes. in the riots. This was brilliant. Describe what happened. Toya Graham, it, it, was, it went viral. It showed her, she saw her son and he covered his face and he was down there throwing rocks at the police. And so this video shows her beating him, giving him a public beating, a public humiliation. And she was made the poster child. She was nominated as mom of the year. And, and, you know, I sat back and I said, this is what we want to say. This is the mother of the year. She beats and humiliates her child in public. It just struck me as extremely odd. And she made the round. She was on every national news program. And again, you get back to the, you know, the white suburban people who are sitting there, wow, what a great mother she is, you know, because she beat her kid up. Uh, it, it just was so odd. And it just yeah. shows to me that the gap between white and, white and black America and, and, and middle class and poor America, it's just, it, yeah. it's widening in this country. I suppose it's easier to laugh at something like that than to deal with the issue as to why that young man was rioting in the first place. Kevin, we'll park exactly. it there. We'll talk to you again next Friday. Kevin Collin of the Boston Globe. Thank you. Thanks, John.